it's still good to come together and do the Lord's table. It's always been an exciting time for us to do this. Uh, we have, uh, uh, we practice an open communion. Anybody that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is, is welcome and invited to join in and participate with us. Lord's table is an amazing <coughs> picture of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and also a reminder of the fact that he's coming back. And the longer we are around on this earth, the closer it gets to him coming back. But the more we see all the events necessary uh, coming together, they're converging. Unlike, they, unlike anything that's ever happened before in history, the events are coming together. The people are coming together. The players are coming together. It's amazing to watch. It's exciting time to be a part of what's going on in the world, even though what we see is not bad. It, is, it was not unknown by the Lord. It was indeed prophesied. It was forecast. He said, get ready. There's going to be the beginning of birth pangs, and there's going to be a lot of things that are, that are going to happen. People are going to depart from the faith. People are going to attack you. They are not going to like you at all because you like me. We find it interesting that today in this world, Christians in this country, which has been a nation that really has taken the gospel to the whole earth probably more than anybody else in the history of the world. And this, this whole idea of Christianity is under massive attack. We're being blamed for everything. And, um, of course, we're blamed for being unscientific. Uh, we're blamed for, uh, I, I guess, uh, bad meals in schools. Whatever, whatever you want to blame us for, you can blame us for. Uh, bad food in hospitals. I guess we'll take the blame for that, too. Whatever it is, we are blamed for it. But the Lord said, don't be surprised. The world hated me first. So... We are called to stand up for him. And we're constantly to look into the mirror of the word of God. Look at ourselves in that mirror. Uh, we know that uh, James says it's like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and after he leaves, he forgets what he looked like. We're supposed to take a look in the mirror of the word of God like the priest did at the bronze laver. What did he do? What did the priest do with the sacrifices? The priest would first offer up the burnt offerings. But when it was time for the service in the tabernacle, he went to the bronze laver right between the altar and the tabernacle tent proper itself. And that was made of polished brass hand mirrors. And he would look at himself and wash his hands before he went in to do the service of the tabernacle. And that was a reminder that you needed to be clean to the Mosaic priest. Confess any sins. You don't go carrying sins into the tabernacle to do, to do service. Look at yourself. Take a good look at what God's word has to say. Because that's the real mirror. Not what the world has to say. That's the way the world judges. And from there they would go into the tabernacle proper. First to the table of showbread. Which had a loaf of bread for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. It's a picture also of Jesus. He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. That's who he is. From there they went to the lampstand. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. See, he was the literal fulfillment 
of the symbolism that was found in the tabernacle. He indeed was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the fulfillment of all the typology found there in the tabernacle itself. And then from the, uh, from the lampstand, they went to the altar of incense. And that's a picture of prayer. Because they would burn incense and inside that veil that they couldn't see behind, inside that veil that incense would permeate into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And that was a beautiful picture of the fact that we as priests, we don't worship at the tabernacle. We have to first start with salvation. And then we have to consistently evaluate ourselves. Then we need to go in and take the bread that came down out of heaven because uh, that's our, our daily bread. We have to learn from the light of the world. We have to communicate with the Almighty through, the, through prayer. That's what we do. And see, the neat thing is the veil's been torn, hadn't it? Now, access is granted into where? The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And what do we find there? Wood overlaid with gold in an ark. Wood is a picture of humanity. Gold is a picture of deity. The God-man, Jesus Christ. In Him, the two tablets of the law. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not one stroke of it will. He is the one who kept the law perfectly. We find the rod of Aaron that budded out of a dead piece of wood came life. Indeed, He is... What? The resurrection and the life. And the pot of manna. This pot of manna that came down inside the ark. The picture of who Jesus Christ is. He alone is the, the unique, the almighty. And he said, come on in to the throne room. Now, to find grace, mercy to help in time of need. Now, all that was done away with. All that tabernacle sacrifice legitimately and temple sacrifice when Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. And now he sat down at the right hand of the throne. And I believe water baptism was designed to take the place of all of those rituals because what's it a picture of? What Jesus Christ did for us once and for all time. A picture of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. How often should, when should we do it? How should we do it? One time. Why? He died for us one time. A picture of the fact you put your faith in him as the one who took your place on the cross, who died, was buried, and rose again, and you shall have eternal life. That's not a wishful thinking. That's not a maybe. That's a promise that comes from the almighty God. Water baptism, I think, takes the place of the whole Levitical offering system because you could take water baptism into all the world. Take it into all the world. Couldn't take the tabernacle into all the world. It was not going to work. So you took water baptism in there with you. Now what about the feast? What did they used to do at the feast? When, were the, when, when was the, the real uh, things fulfilled? When was the reality behind the... Rituals fulfilled. Well, see, the spring feast involved the feast of first fruit. Christ, the first fruit from the dead. You see the way the scripture identifies this typology for us? You find the feast of unleavened bread going on in the spring. Jesus Christ had no, had no evil found in him. He was totally 
unleavened. You find the feast of Passover as well, the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Fifty days later, you have the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is when the law was given to Moses after they walked out of Egypt. It's a picture of the change of the law. And when there's a change of the law, it's because there's been a change of the priesthood. And for us, it was a change from the Levitical priesthood to the royal priesthood. Now we're the ones that offer up sacrifices. But we're called to offer up ourselves to the Almighty. Not animals. We're called to present ourselves a living sacrifice. We are priests now to God. That's who we are. And that's the day of Pentecost. What about the fall feast? Everybody's listening for the trumpet, aren't they? Feast of Tabernacles, which is the, the fee or booth, which is a picture of the millennial kingdom and the day of atonement, the day our Redeemer actually sets foot on the earth and he takes out all of his enemies. What a picture. What does the Lord's table do? It looks back at what he did, right? Passover, unleavened, first fruits. It looks for us in the church as a change of law. We're the priest now to God. And it looks forward to the fact that he's coming back. The fall feast. So we don't have the go up to Jerusalem three times a year like the commandments under the law. We didn't have that. Now we can take this message into all the world like Jesus told us to do. Baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Wow. That's what we're called to do. Baptism and the Lord's table, what a picture that is. And the fact he's came, he accomplished his task, and he's coming back to finish it at the second advent. That's what the Lord's table is an amazing picture of. Now, it's also a time for us to ask ourselves, have we made any spiritual progress since the last time we did this? Because he told us, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. He didn't tell us how often to do it. He just said, keep on doing this. Do it every day, every week, every month. He left that to our freedom. But he said, be consistent. Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. So, <clears throat> we're, we're called to celebrate, uh, once again, what, what he had done for us on a consistent basis. And that's why we, we usually do it the first week, but we don't always do it the first Sunday of the month. Sometimes we do it around Christmas near the end of the month or Thanksgiving near the end of the month. We have our own traditions and that doesn't violate any laws because he didn't tell us how often to do it. So we come together to do this, but it's also a time for us to look back and say, have I made any spiritual progress since the last time I partook? Am I going backwards? Am I running in place or trying to? Or am I moving forward? Do I trust God more than I did the last time I did this? See, to look into that mirror of the Word of God says that we're to, we're to do that before we partake. We're not to partake in an unworthy manner. 1 Corinthians 11 warns us, For this cause many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You don't, you don't uh, mess with it. It's a ritual. It won't save you. But it's not a game to be played. So, what do we do? We go in front of the throne of grace. 
If we need to confess something, we do. If we need to uh, change our way of thinking, we do that. We probably don't have enough time to uh, <laughs> spend doing You need to do that before you get here. But we're going to take a little bit of time. And if, if you realize you need to change something, then just go in front of the Lord and tell him, you, you, Lord, I know I messed up here. Okay, this is something that I can work on. Show me the way. And that's what he does. Then we make the changes. And we partake of the Lord's table in a way that we can truly appreciate him. What did he do for us? So there's always a time of spiritual preparation before we participate in this. So let's take this moment. If you've come and not accepted Christ as your Savior, no time like the present. No time like the present. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He appeared. He literally rose again. Not just a thought or a memory. A literal person. Walked away from that tomb. If you want someone who to trust for your eternity, it makes sense to trust somebody who has defeated sin and death and walked away from a tomb. How easy is it? Just let the Father know. You're trusting in His Son. It's real easy to do. So let's take this time and pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this privilege of being able to participate in this ritual that pictures the reality of what your son did in our place on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. We thank you for being able to celebrate this that reminds us of the fact one day he's coming back. He's going to come get his bride, take her to himself, which is your house, and there we will be prepared for the wedding feast and the wedding supper of the Lamb. Father, what a blessing it is to be part of your family, part of Christ's body, part of the flock, part of your church. Father, I pray that as we participate, this will not be simply a ritual. The Father, indeed, it will, it will focus and be an appreciation of the reality that indeed your Son became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory as the only begotten of you. Full of grace and full of, full of truth. Let us appreciate that all the more. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the Lord's table consists of two elements. If, if you don't have one of these, hold your hand up and we'll get you one real quick. Okay, Paula. Use one. All right. <clears throat> you notice these are a little easier. Okay, the little part goes on top, the big part goes on the bottom. Okay. On top is the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is an amazing picture of who Christ is because leaven is a picture of evil in Scripture. There was no evil in him whatsoever. He was born of a virgin, so there was no imputation of Adam's sin or his original sin into Christ. Now, he was... 
Christ was born that way. Adam was created that way and Adam fell. But Jesus is viewed as the last Adam. So he's the only one other than Adam to start perfectly. But unlike Adam, he's the only one that remained perfect. Only you are holy, cries all of the angels and all the humans in Revelation 15 and 16. Only you're holy. What a statement of fact that that is. He is the only one that lived a perfect life. Now, can you imagine for going through a week without a mental sin, a verbal sin, probably an overt sin. Maybe we've got past those now, but that's only a third of the way there, isn't it? Only a third. Now, <clears throat> this is a picture of Christ who committed no sin whatsoever. No deceit was found in his mouth. He did not revile in return when he was reviled. It was amazing to look at his life of which we only get a part recorded in the Gospels. And John said if we had to write a book about all the things that he had done, the world wouldn't hold the books. It is just too much to figure out in a three and a half year ministry. Look at what he did. Look at what he did and he remained perfect. Was he tested? No devil himself went after him, didn't he? Forty days in the wilderness. That didn't work at all. His disciples at times went after him. That didn't work. Romans went after him. That didn't work. The Jews went after him. These were the religious elitists that knew everything there was to know. That didn't work either, did it? But the lamb had to be tested for defects. And this lamb of God that John the Baptist introduced, the one that takes away the sin of the world, there was no defects found in him whatsoever. That qualified him to, to, to go to the cross. Because had he sinned, he'd be just like any one of us. He'd have been just like Adam. But he did not sin. Therefore, he was qualified to take a task on himself, to drink a cup, if you will, that only he could drink. And that amazing cup was his death on a cross in our place. Now that's what that little piece of bread is, is all about. That little piece of bread. Go ahead and take the bread out. Because this bread is indeed an amazing picture of who he is. It's our, our custom around here for everybody to hold the bread and all of us to take it at one time. But first we're going to have just a second of prayer to think about what the man Jesus Christ did. It's a picture of his perfect humanity. See, the bread's his humanity. The cup is his work. His person and his work. That's what the picture is. Think about what the man Jesus Christ did. He endured the pain. He endured the insults. And think about the good that he did. Because he was the one... When people were in trouble and people were in need, he's the one that answered the call. That's what he did. <clears throat> if they needed to eat, he fed them. If they needed clothing, he sent them to the right place. They needed healing, they came to him. If they needed their souls fixed, that was a place to go, wasn't it? And that's what this little piece of bread is about. So we're going to take a moment for this and and that uh, Danny would you bless the bread for us please
This piece of bread, he took it. <clears throat> he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. As we think about the man Jesus Christ, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, 35 miracles recorded in the Gospels. Didn't even remotely touch the number that he that he performed people he wrote that he brought back from the dead Lazarus we think about those things what a time that he had on earth in those three and a half years but then we start thinking about his work and we get truly humbled because he came to do something we couldn't do the disciples he told the disciples there's a cup I've got to drink from. And they said, well, we'll drink from it too. And he said, you can't. <clears throat> they couldn't because they weren't qualified. If they w were qualified, they might not have wanted to. But Jesus, when he took this cup and he started going through the trials, and you think about the trials taken in front of six tribunals, nobody could really convict him. They couldn't find two witnesses that would agree on anything enough to bring even false charges against him. It was unbelievable. And then, what happened with his um, disciples? They scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They swore they'd never deny him. What did Peter do? He ran off. What did the Jews do? They spit on him. They hit him. They uh, hurled abuse at him. They delivered him over to the Romans. Pilate was the only one that seemed to have some common sense. And said, I don't find anything wrong with this man. What do you want us to do? I can give you Barabbas. It's our custom to do that. Or I can give you him. You choose. And what do they cry? Give us Barabbas. A known thief, evildoer, murderer. Instead of Christ, what did you want me to do with him? He said, crucify him, was their answer. That's hard to even imagine, but what would we have done had we been in that crowd that day? What happened after he rose from the dead? Took people a while to figure it out, didn't they? And then they figured out that everything that he said and did prove the fact that he's God that became flesh and he took on himself the sins of all mankind what amazing amazing blessing that is and see this little little bit of juice here that's a picture of the cup he drank it's a cup it was a bitter cup for Christ but it's a cup of blessing for us because we think about blessings and all the things about blessings. We have our own ideas about blessings. But the greatest blessing is knowing where we're going to spend eternity. And it's not because of anything we did or didn't do. It's because of what he did. And our simple acceptance of that. Go ahead and take the, the lid.
off of the cup. This is a picture of his perfect work on the cross. Let's have just a little bit of silence to think about his work for, for you individually. He knew who you were individually when he went to the cross. He knew all of us. He knew what a big mess we were. And yet, no one takes his life from him. He said, but I lay it down willingly. He knew all of our sins and said, I'll pay for them. I'll take it on me right now. So we'll be quiet for just a little. Just think about that for a second. He was there in your place. <clears throat> Kelvin, would you bless the cup, sir? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your plan. We thank you for uh, the work of Christ. Just thinking about the fact that you know, he paid a price that we couldn't pay, even if we wanted to. Like a different currency, you know? Simply not qualified to die for each other's sins. We thank you for his work. We thank you for his example of selflessness. He entered himself. Come down in the form of man to be obedient, not just obedient in a nice way, but obedient to the point of death and even death mm -hmm. on the cross. One of the most cruel ways to uh, to die. It's in Christ and we pray. And he took the cup, cup and he said, "This is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim his death till he comes back again." Let's drink. Father, we serve an awesome God, you. Father, we think about this plan that included your son taking our place on a cross. What an amazing plan that is. And Father, as Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. At the last, he shall take his stand upon the earth. I pray that that will become more real to us with each and every passing day. That we realize, indeed, our Redeemer lives. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And He alone has earned it. May we always lift Him up and exalt Him in every way. For we pray and ask this in Jesus' amazing name. And the congregation said, Amen. And they sang a hymn. Open your Bibles to Matthew 24 and verse 47. Matthew 24 and verse 47, and uh, I thought about, uh, you know, it's 30th anniversary, and those are always kind of special, and, and uh, what, what about, what kind of message? A lot of times these special messages take on weird stuff, <laughs> don't seem to do anything, so... I just opened up the passage, and guess what was already here? A great message for 30th anniversary. It's a message about blessing. As we think back, and there, there are few of us still around that were here early on that uh, have uh, been through the 
last 30 years. We have an interesting history. We started at uh, the Governor's Inn on South Meridian at the bar. And uh, it meant Bibles are required. <laughs> and when you entered in, we'd often enter in to the smell of burnt bacon and old beer. It was left over from the night before. And uh, we moved around a couple of different hotels, but that's where we were for quite a while. Moved out to the Seventh-day Adventist Church on I-240. Had a good relationship with them, nice people, and, and uh, uh, got to uh, visit with them. And, of course, they use it on Saturday, Shabbat, and we use it on Sunday, so everything worked out very well on that and we were out there for years and years and uh, then Lord uh, uh, oh let's see after we left there we were at Oklahoma OSU OKC on 10th and Portland for I don't know two three or four years until they decided that the separation of church and state must be under uh, they, they had to look at that so they weren't real comfortable about letting us rent out part of the student union on Sunday mornings anymore and we haul stuff around we hauled around a couple of these uh, speakers keyboards stuff like that and we go set it up every Sunday morning tear it back down and take it home carry songbooks with us I mean it was quite a deal and that that was 91 and we went to 2000 and then um, the Lord provided this place. We started looking, and uh, this part of the thing wasn't here, but the one up, up front, which is to the south, so I, said, I guess you could say it's in the back. It depends on how you do directions. Anyway, that building I'm looking at across there right now, the old house built by, the, by a carpenter in uh, 1952, and we called it the carpenter's house, which fits. <laughs> it was... Uh, uh, it was a house, and we had to make it suitable for commercial use, even though it wasn't a commercially zoned property. It was a church zoned in a residential area, which is legal. You can put a you could put a church anywhere. I'm not sure you can anymore now. But so anyway, we had to bring it up to speed. That's why it's got the wheelchair ramps and various things like that. And uh, the Lord. Uh, blessed us there in a, a lot of different ways. At uh, one time we had people crammed in there literally on Sunday mornings. We had 40 or 50 kids in the, it was the garage back there. We called it the youth room. It was a fancy way to say the garage because it was the garage that got converted. And uh, a lot of people coming over a period of time and then some of them got shipped to Turkey. One of them was a... a Air Force AWACS pilot had five kids that kind of hurt the youth group and one of them was a fireman had five kids and they ended up in Chickasha I mean several different things happened over the years and then along about 2007 we had all those people and we needed another building so we built this and by the time we got it built everybody moved away so here we are but this little church has been blessed by God in so many different ways 
And it's, it's not by numbers because this is not about numbers. God's work is not about, it is about numbers, but it's not the only thing. He wants to get the gospel to the whole world. And he wants to fill up the body of Christ. He wants to fill up the, the building of God, if you will. He wants to complete all those. So in a sense, it's about numbers. But indeed, it is not only about numbers. And so God has used us, I, I kind of think we're kind of like James the Less. And how much do we know about James the Less? Quite less, right? We know the name of his, uh, we, we know he had a mama, okay, tells us that. We know that he had a daddy named Alphaeus, just like Matthew had a daddy named Alphaeus, possibly brothers probably brothers actually and James the less was one of those people that kind of just went around behind the scenes because you don't ever hear what you do know is he argued with everybody because it said they all argued with each other in there it makes some group statements about those people so they they all argued with with each other and you know that he was part of it but he was the kind of person that could move around and not be noticed not be seen we don't know if he's called the less because he was short, young, or whatever it was. We don't have any idea. He's just called the less. And what we, what we do know was that he was a disciple that gave his life for the cause of Christ and never, never denied him. So we have that information. In some ways, we're a small group of people. And through this small group of people, you see those missionaries on the wall. There have been a lot of people around this world touched through this small group of people. So we'll know one of these days when we stand in front of the Lord. It's not important for us to know how many right now. Because he knows. He's the one that keeps track. We're supposed to keep doing our job. And we do know that there's, there's going to be blessings for it. Now what the, the Lord is talking about here in the Olivet Discourse in verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and sensible bondservant? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. He's talking about faithful and sensible. Practically wise is the word sensible. Able to think about practical wisdom as which route are you going to take to church? Which route are you going to take to work? Well, you know that this road's under construction. Maybe you need to take this road. That's more the practical type of wisdom that we have. The divine wisdom is how do I, do I apply this doctrine to the situation or this doctrine to the situation? We pray for that quite honestly and pray for the practical wisdom too. But he's saying it's very important, it's practical <coughs> to feed them at the proper time according to the season. And if you think we're in the last generation of the church, we need to be fed accordingly. And I think that's what the scripture is teaching us. Fed accordingly, according to the season that we find ourselves in, with the appearance of Christ's return being imminent. So we need to be prepared for that, because this is all about preparation. And this verse introduces, 2445, the next three parables. It's what it does. It's a faithful and sensible servanthood. Parable of the ten virgins is the wisdom of preparation. Okay? The wisdom of preparation. Parable of the talents, the wisdom of action. Taking what you got and using with it. And the question of who, who then is the faithful and sensible servant 
who will step forward and take care of the Lord's house now to give them their food at the proper season. Verse 46, blessed, Makarios, same word found in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of heaven, blessed are the meek. We find the blessed are's in Matthew 5, same word found here. Jesus opened his ministry with the blessed are's, now he's closing his ministry with blessed's. Is that slave or bondservant whom his kurios, whom his master, finds so doing when he comes, verse 47, truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. This is not every believer that he's going to put in charge of his possessions for the millennial kingdom. It's the faithful and sensible one. So there are rewards. There are different types of rewards. And in heaven, in the millennial kingdom, we're all not going to be equal. We're equal people. We're equal beings. But we're not equal as to function. And that's the way it's always been. That's the way he's established it. We're equal in value to him. He loves all of us. He wants everyone to be saved. But what Satan once had now belongs to the Lord. In Matthew 28, verse 11 and 19, we don't have time to read them today. In those passages is a picture of Satan, the king of Tyre. Now we know it is a picture of Satan because in verse 10, 1 to 10 talks about the prince of Tyre. In verse 11, it changes to the king of Tyre. The prince of Tyre was the human ruler on a little island off the coast of Israel. Out there, Tyre, very wealthy, the whole Ezekiel 26 through 28.10 deals with the fall of this little kingdom. That was a powerful nation. It was a seafaring nation. And they saw the enemies of Israel going after them. And they went, oh, I hope this happens. Because if, if they get them, we'll get more business. And it was a thought of greed. And God said, oh, I heard that. And so he wipes them out. Now, who's the real power behind the throne of the prince of Tyre? The king of Tyre. And it changes. It changes totally to Satan himself. And what we see there, if you believe in a literal interpretation of the scripture, you get a pre-fall picture of Satan right there in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 and 19. You are the anointed cherub that covers. He's not talking about a human being if you believe in a literal interpretation. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Prince of Tyre, King of Tyre, wasn't a literal human being. But who was there? What was your job? And it says, this was all of what you had. Every precious stone was your covering and all that. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were barad, brought into existence, okay, until unrighteousness was found in you. What's the unrighteousness? Isaiah 14 verse 12 to 14 gives it to us. The five I wills of Satan. Tells us what it is. But it's literally talking about the pre-fall uh, time and assignment of Satan. Now, <clears throat> this is what Satan looked like prior to the fall. So what Satan had he had all those possessions. Look at what he had because it's outlined in there. He had it. He doesn't have it anymore. Christ took it back. 
And he took it back with his death, burial, and resurrection. To the faithful and sensible bondservants will become the millennial blessing of a position of honor. That's what he's saying. You do your job heartily as unto the Lord right now, and God won't forget it. You want to have a position of honor and rulership in the millennial kingdom? Here it is. It will also be a position of service. Now, sometimes we think of authority, and people with the wrong idea about authority and rulership miss this quite frequently. It'll be a position of service, not of being served. Now, sometimes people go, oh, I'm the boss. I'm the big guy. Okay, you do this for me, you do this for me, you do this for me, and you. But how does the Lord lead? We're going to be made like him, aren't we? Resurrection bodies. How, what did he do? The king of kings and lord of lords washed the disciples' feet. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for the many. So what will our role be with a position of authority in the millennial kingdom? It'll be one of service, not of being served. And that we can count on. As we serve the Lord, various blessings are enjoyed. Now, think about this. We truly realize what the Lord gave us the moment of salvation. We've been covering that on Wednesday nights. The 50 blessings we've identified that he poured out on us the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that means that we've already got them. The problem is, it's kind of like you got a whole bunch of gifts under the tree on Christmas. And you don't know what's inside of them. And what do you start doing? Unwrapping them. Alright, here you've got a gift that says redemption. Labeled redemption. What does that really mean in your life? So that's a blessing. You've already been redeemed. You don't have to earn it. You're not going to get it late. You've already been redeemed. What does that mean? You've already been reconciled to God. What does that mean? The Father's already been propitiated for your sins. What does that mean in your life? He's been expiated. That means removed. The sins have been removed. Isn't it? What does that mean? These are blessings we already have. Not that we're trying to get. So a part of what we're going to be doing as we serve the Lord, we're going to enjoy the blessings we've already got. They're not received. They've already been given. They are not achieved. Or it would have been an issue of the works of the flesh. They're not accepted because they've already been accepted the moment we trusted Christ. So what are these blessings for? To be enjoyed. To be enjoyed. Now we think as human beings on a worldly scale... And that's what happened to the Jews at the first advent. All they could see is Roman domination. All right, Messiah is going to throw the Romans out. They're still looking for that Messiah to come throw out the invading forces, whoever they are, whoever's putting pressure on them. He didn't come to take care of that problem. The spiritual is the problem he came to take care of. Now, one of these days, he'll get rid of all the earthly oppressors he's going to take them out he's, he will destroy all of his enemies Psalm 110 he'll destroy all of his enemies but these blessings that we've already been given we need to enjoy them now 
We can. You know, the, the gift of eternal life? Wow, what a blessing that is. I don't have to live my life in fear. Now, what a blessing that is. And the more I love God, the more I understand it, because perfect love casts out fear. Does it not? That's what the book says. So the more I love God, the less fear I should have in my life. I shouldn't be afraid of this. Isn't it amazing how we can, how mankind, with all of their science, can generate an unseen enemy? And this unseen enemy is a little bitty virus now that's got everybody scared to death. Trying to do crowd control on everybody that's there. You know, we've got a real enemy, and it's called Satan and his forces. That's where the real enemy is. It's not saying we should be reckless. That's not practically wise. Phronimos, the Greek word. But it says we should be, Sophia, divinely wise. If God wants to take me that way, he takes me that way. That's the way, it, that's the way we should view it. Should we just cramp up and not live our life in a way that would honor and please him? That's not what he's called us to do. Fear should not be the driving force in our life. Again, not a matter of recklessness. I still refuse to bungee jump. And I just saw the other day where a bungee cord failed. And so that just confirmed that that's a foolish uh, <laughs> act as far as I'm concerned. Uh, enjoy the blessings. What do we already got? Let's just pick, let's let the book tell us some of the blessings we've got. How about the first one? Forgiveness from our sins. You know, we've been forgiven, taken away, removed. In the Old Testament, sins were said to be covered. It's like a big pile of sin out there, and it's got a big tarp over it. And it's said to be covered, and God said, I'm not going to hold that against you right now, but one of these days, it's still got to be dealt with because it's an issue. One of these days, I'm going to remove it as an issue. What did that? The cross. That's what forgiven means, wiped away. It is no longer there. Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. See, that's makarios. That's the word for happiness to those. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We've already been blessed with that forgiveness from the Almighty. Now, it's interesting because Hindus don't recognize sin. Some of the new postmodern viewpoint, I, Thomas Samuel, one of the guys on the wall back there, said we have a problem convincing Hindus that they're sinners because they don't believe there is any such thing as sin. There's good karma and bad karma. And maybe if you do some bad stuff and get caught, you'll have some bad karma that, that comes along as a result of it. They don't recognize sin. That's part of this, this uh, cosmic uh, spirituality that is being promoted now and what happens now we have a society where people don't recognize sin so how are they going to appreciate forgiveness from their sins so if you have become a believer you know you've been forgiven of your sins and you actually feel sorry for those that don't recognize their sinners that's part of the way the devil deceives people and pulls blindfolds over their, their eyes. Forgiveness from our sins is one of the blessings. 
Perseverance under trial from James 1 verses 12 to 14. Why should perseverance under trial be considered a blessing? Don't you just love the very first book of the Bible, James? And in the first book, verses 2 to 4, says, Blessed are those who persevere. Okay, why? Let it have its perfect result that you can be mature and complete and lack nothing. Okay, when you encounter various trials, not if, when. James 1.12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's one of those special blessings of eternity above and beyond heaven itself where gold is paving material that's one of those blessings let no one say when he's tempted I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust temptation is a solicitation to sin or evil that's what temptation is testing is what God does and it is a solicitation to good. To do the right thing. Same word in the Greek. Same word in the Hebrew. Actually the contest text determines what it is. Why persevere? Why is it happiness? Because you get to see the Lord work. If you're paying attention you will. If you're not paying attention. <laughs> I, I think about I I re remember some of the gospels. Lord, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Behold, my beloved son, <laughs> in whom I am well pleased. And the multitude thought it had thundered. <laughs> You've got to be looking for it. Or you're not going not to see it. Perseverance under the trial. Under trial. How about doing the word? We're living the word, doing the right thing. When we're living a life of honor and service to the Almighty. I think of this past, look, we're still in James here. James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not hearers who delude themselves. Now a lot of us may have been at one time so interested intellectually in the word. That we forgot do, about doing the word. But Jesus says if any man wants to do his will. Then he shall know of the teaching. If you really want to know what the book says. You've got to be willing to do it. If you're not willing to do it. What happens? Hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word. Not a doer. He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Uh, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be makarios, blessed in what he does. The Lord will bless us. But what are the real blessings? Real blessings come from being aligned with the will of the Almighty. How about suffering for the sake of righteousness? We all love this one, don't we? 
It's a blessing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. 1 Peter 3.13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. When someone persecutes you, hurls abuse at you, whatever, if you've got a Jesus sticker or fish on your car and somebody scratches that up, it's real hard to view that as a blessing, isn't it? But it's an interesting thing they teach in the Air Force. If you're not getting any flack, you're not over the target. If you're over the target, you're going to be getting some flack. So we ought to be getting some flack. Someone said, <laughs> Gary Horton, some of his great Hortonisms that he comes up with, if, there, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Yeah, true statement. Would there be? First Peter 3, sanctify. Uh, even if you suffer, for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Learning how to engage in a conversation instead of just trying to beat them down with words. Learn how to carry on a conversation. Keep a good conscience in the thing in which you are slandered, so that those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Don't play the same game with them. Leave it in the Lord's hands. Remember Romans 12, 21, Revenge is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Sometimes we're too eager to help him out. How about standing up for Jesus? Another passage in Peter. Who denied him at the wrong time. Think about what Peter went through, got restored, and learned from it. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes on you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so at the revelation of his glory you might rejoice with exultation if you're reviled for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you it's a whole different way to look at things isn't it and how about giving to other people Acts 20.35, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. He spent three years with them. It's a first, one of the first seminary classes that we see. After the Lord spent three years with, with the, after Paul spent three years with the Lord being taught what to do, then here's three years. He's got the Ephesian elders. He's gathered them together. He's been teaching them. And he says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what Paul found. As we help other people, invest in other people, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. As we do that, then what does it say? As more blessed. It is more to be willing to help out and to join in and to help other people in their times of need. That's where real blessing comes from. See, when we start trying to say blessing 
has always a physical, tangible asset to it, that's where we miss the good stuff. That's where we miss the good stuff. Wouldn't it be nice to have peace in our soul right now? And if you ask people on the street what would they like most, few of them would probably say peace or hope. Few of them. But really, that's what makes it all worthwhile. We have the faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on nothing less. In other words, in Jesus' love, righteousness. And what do we do with the love? Faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love God when we don't understand him. Love our neighbor when they're not deserving. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have poured out upon us in the beloved. Father, it's such a blessing to be in union with our Lord Jesus Christ and know that our eternal destiny is forever secure. Father, we cannot thank you enough for that. I pray, Father, that that as we approach this coming week, that we will be thankful all the more of that which you've already given us and that we will seek to use what you have given us to serve you in a greater way. May we honor you with all of our thought, speech, and actions, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.